Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Apple Podcasts, and TalkLawRadio.com. Marquardt Law Firm sponsors our show, and attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans, Today, I'm going to skip the disclaimer because we have so much to talk about, and you already heard a disclaimer that is pre-programmed into my show, the disclaimer being that uh, we're not giving legal advice, uh, we're just giving information about immigration law today. But before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day and for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins, our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing and failing to do your will. Please help attorney Shannon Salmon Haas, Dr. Kristen Witte, Juan Molina, and me give good information to the listeners about immigration law today. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the, the now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. My favorite part about Talk Law Radio is our Law and Gospel series. I got the idea for Law and Gospel series because sermons at my church always include the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel. The Christian faith views the Old Testament of the Bible to be the law and the New Testament to be the gospel, which means the good news. When Talk Law Radio gives a program about law and gospel, we're talking about the law of the United States and the state of Texas in statutes, court cases, and regulations. I like to talk about what the current law requires us to do or forbids us against doing and then talk about what the Bible says that Christians should do or should not do based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord. Today our law and gospel program is about immigration, specifically deferred action for childhood arrival, asylum, interior enforcement, unaccompanied minors, and other changes President Biden proposes to make. Dr. Kristen Witte, Director of Outreach for Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, 
will be sharing what the Bible says about immigration with us. Our guest attorney, Shannon Salmon Haas, earned her bachelor's degree from Our Lady of the Lake University. She earned her Juris Doctor from St. Mary's University School of Law here in San Antonio. We were in the same class. We graduated the same year. Uh, Ms. Salmon Haas is a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, the Immigration and Nationality Section of the State Bar of Texas. She's a member of the National Lawyers Guild, a member of the Criminal Law and Procedure Committee of the San Antonio Bar Association, and an attorney member of the National Immigration Project. She's been featured in a discovery film about deportation, and her columns have been published in La Prensa. Welcome to Talk Law Radio, Shannon. Thank you. I'm very excited you're going to be here to talk to us about immigration law today. Uh, But besides immigration law, what else are you passionate about? I've got two kids, and they're super fun. So (laughs) I just love hanging out with them. And my husband, uh, so passionate about my family. Oh, good. Okay. So we're going to talk about DACA. Uh, Will you tell us what is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals? If you've ever heard someone talk about the DREAMers here in the United States, that's what they're talking about, people who would be eligible for this program uh, started in 2012 under the Obama administration. And what it did basically was if you were a young person that was brought here to the United States, um, you know, as a young person, if you can prove that you had been here since a certain date, if you had either been in school, if you were gainfully employed, if you were in the military, um, if you did not have any criminal convictions or there were some small exceptions for very minor misdemeanors, then you would get a deferred status. So it's not a green card, but you would have the ability to live and work here without fear of deportation. The 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 reasoning behind that program was, I know where I grew up along the border, I would go to school with, you know, my classmates and when it came time, they were just like me in every way. You know, they looked like me, they mm-hmm. talked like me, and they were kind of expecting the same opportunities that I would have. But time would come for us to go take driver's ed, and they would go home and say, hey, Mom, I need my birth certificate. Um, you know, Shannon's signing up for driver's ed. I want to do that, too. And they would say, you know, that in their house it was a different story. Well, Mika, sit down. We have something to tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to produce that United States birth certificate you're needing. Um, so it would just get worse from there because they couldn't get a job. Um, they couldn't go to college. Um, so this program really fixed all of that um, to where um, these dreamers, which for the most part from my experience are just amazing people you know they they just if you're talking about a dreamer these are people that are valedictorian of their classes they excel at all at everything they do you know they really um are just amazing people very ambitious and intelligent um it created an opportunity so 
people came forward, um, a little under a million people, and they gave over their information in 2012 to the government. And I have sat in my office and assured people this is a good program. Go ahead and apply for this. Um, the government is not going to do something like this and then just yank it away. That would be unprecedented. So I myself personally have assured people, come out of the shadows. We'll sign you up for this program. Um, and it worked very well for a while. Um, there were many DACA members, in DACA recipients in the military. So these are people that live and work among us, and you wouldn't really notice any difference. They're homeowners, business owners. Um, you really can't get DACA by sitting on your derriere. <laughs> so these are people that were go-getters, and they were integral parts of our society. So the, the last administration under the Trump administration, they completely ended DACA mm -hmm. rather unceremoniously. They just said, nope, no more DACA. And it was like chaos. It was like a, a bomb went off mm -hmm. because... This is not the same as deporting a young man from Honduras who doesn't have a life here. You know, if he just got here yesterday and he was hoping to come in and have a better life, if you send him back, that's different. If you're telling someone that has a job, a family, their entire life here, we're not going to be renewing your legal status. There was, you know, chaos in the, in the community that I saw. Wow. Well, let's uh, hear from Juan. Uh, Juan Molina is a legal assistant and records custodian at Marquardt Law Firm, and uh, he graduated from UTSA in, in what year? Uh, 2019. And he's been working for Marquardt Law Firm ever since, and uh, he would like to uh, attend law school and uh, maybe practice immigration law, so he was interested in this field, and I asked him to come along. Uh, first, we're going to take a break, and then uh, we'll hear from Juan and, and see what his questions are. Uh, his life experience uh, enables him to have a unique perspective on this issue. So if uh, you stay with us, we'll hear that unique perspective on Talk Law Radio, 930 AM, The Answer. If you recently moved to Texas from out of state, your current will, trust, and power of attorney may need to be reviewed and updated. Wills and powers of attorney are state-specific, so it might be a good idea to meet with a Texas attorney. Marquardt Law Firm is the go-to firm in San Antonio for wills, trust, and powers of attorney. They'll develop a strategy to tax-efficiently protect and preserve your assets, reduce family conflict, and maximize government benefits. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. 210-530-4278. Protect what's yours with Marquardt Law Firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, talking with attorney Shannon Salmon Haas about immigration law. And uh, Juan was about to ask a question. So, Hello, Ms. Shannon. Um, so I had a question. Uh, it's basically what you just said on Trump's administration, you know, terminating the, the DACA. Um, so, had there been any changes, or has it been reinstated? Talked about the I mean, has the government um, come and, and said anything about it? 
Well, yes, I, I could go on and on about that. There was a lot of wranglings in the court that went on, a lot of litigation about this. But the short answer is yes, that was day one for the new administration. He completely reinstated DACA. So currently it's an active, very reliable, valid program. So anyone under 31, if they can prove that they, you know, it's not for someone that just came to the United States yesterday. You have to prove that you've been here, you've gone to school, people provide, you know, pages and pages of their documentation of their life, that they've, their school records, their medical records, anything that shows that they fit the qualifications for DACA. So it's a very good program people can qualify for right now. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Is it okay if we move on to oh, yes, asylum? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, so what is asylum? What does that mean? Well, traditionally in this country, um, the way asylum worked was if you presented yourself at the border, um, you had a, le a legal right to claim asylum here in the United States. There was a, a, a strict screening process that would go on, so they had to find that you had a credible fear of returning to your country. You can't make just a general claim. You, they have uh, investigators. They put you through several levels of scrutiny. But if they find that you do have a credible fear, um, you were allowed to enter the United States and stay here and while your case was heard. So you would stay within the United States. So the reason you might have seen it in the news so much lately was that during the past administration, they had tweaked a, a little law. They didn't really have to change it because they're given broad discretion in how they interpret it. So they just chose to interpret it a little differently, and that meant that people would have to apply for asylum in whatever country they passed through. So that created some encampments of people that were, you know, stationed outside of Mex outside of the border mm -hmm. um, at the border of the U.S. and Mexico, and those encampments are, you know, people have been living in there going on two years now. So that was another change where um, President Biden has started adjudicating those asylum cases. So the people that have been living in those camps, they are starting to have their asylum claims heard. He has not. A lot of people that would be very pro-immigrant would want to see more changes, but he currently has not made any change to the law as far as allowing people in. So the situation is still the same in that if you come to the United States and you're trying to enter the border, the vast majority of people are being sent back. There is not a legal program currently if you're just... Um, an average person trying to come here without permission. So they are. They there is a special program uh, for children, which maybe we'll get to the mm -hmm. SIJ, the Special Immigrant Juvenile. So if you're an unaccompanied minor, there is a program for you, um, and then we can talk more about that if if you find that interesting. But for most people, you're still going to be sent back at the border at this time. We'll back up just a second. What does asylum mean? I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> I think I've made a boo-boo. <laughs> asylum is a program. It's a federal law. And if you were to be granted asylum, you can stay here legally and live here in the United States. So it's granting a person who was not born here the right to live here. It's incredibly hard to qualify for asylum. So what are some circumstances where somebody would be granted 
Currently, there's several circumstances, but you have to be in a very particular set of people. So you, for example, you couldn't be the average citizen of a country that had gang violence and come here and say, I'm scared to return to my country because of gang violence. Mm -hmm. So the way the laws have been interpreted, that would not be a winning asylum claim. Mm -hmm. And an attorney that brought a claim like that would actually be in danger of being reprimanded. So you won't find attorneys taking cases like that. So what would be like a a clear winner? Well, it might be interesting to talk about what would have been a clear winner because there was a particular class where women, it's a really hot topic right now if abused women, women who were abused in their country, Mm -hmm. whether they would qualify for asylum here or not. So under the past administration, there was um, the, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, there was an interpretation of a very big case that has set a precedent where if the courts choose to follow it now, a woman who was abused in her country and can present credible evidence of that currently would have a very difficult time, the laws being being interpreted against her. So that's in litigation right now, whether there would have to be some type of government involvement in that abuse or whether just abuse by her husband would be enough. I I want your listeners to keep in mind that when I'm talking about this, it might sound easy. It is so difficult to have an And your other uh, woman from the LIRS that's Mm going to be talking, Mm -hmm. she can talk more about that, too. It's very, very difficult to have an asylum claim granted. Most of them are denied. And I guess if you're asking for an example, um, some of them that I can think of that have been approved in, in my caseload, um, a young man who was from a Latin American country, and he could prove that he was targeted specifically. Um, several members of his family were killed, and he was targeted because he was walking to church, and they wanted him to deliver drugs instead of going to the church. Mm-hmm. And so the, the gangs are kind of aggressive in Latin American countries. So he was able to prove that not only did he have a a very real um, reason to be afraid because several members of his family had been killed. He was in a particular set of people, and that is Christians who refuse to cooperate with gang violence okay. and with the drug trade. I think there's uh, something going on in Burma, Myanmar, with uh, persecution of Christians. And uh, maybe Dr. Woody will talk about that a little bit when she comes on. Uh, Juan, any comment on asylum? Yes, I, I do have one specific question. And uh, you see, my, I'm from Laredo, and so when I when I went um, to visit my parents, of course, I would have to cross the the border in Nuevo Laredo. Um, so when when I came back, um, you know, um, San Antonio, I have to cross the border, and sometimes I did it through, um, you know, just walking, and so. Is there a reason, because, like, whenever I, I crossed, you know, at the bridge, it's, the bridge is actually divided into two halves, uh, one Mexican and one American. And there is, uh, you know, a, a clear line of distinction of the countries and the bridge. Is there, uh, and, and, oh, sorry, and I forgot to explain this. And, you know, actually, the, the officers are actually at the line of um, the American side, mm-hmm. per se, um, is there a reason why they're there? Uh, you know, if someone were to step into U.S. soil, would they 
be considered um, uh, to seek asylum, or uh, do you know anything about that? What I know is that if you were a person that was trying to take advantage um, of this federal law, and I don't mean take advantage in a mm -hmm. negative way, if you want to make use of this law that exists, what you would do is present yourself to that very first officer that you saw, and you would say, I have a fear of returning to my country. And so that's the way it traditionally worked. And then obviously there were a lot of changes under the Trump administration, and that's why you saw those encampments starting, mm -hmm. because people were no longer brought into the screening process that was in place, and so the large encampments would form right outside the border of people hoping to take advantage of that process. Okay. Just like in Matamoros, right? That Correct. Okay. Yes. That's, that's where a lot of that is happening. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a good segue to the interior enforcement, uh, enforcement of uh, these regulations and laws. And so my first question is, um, which federal agencies interpret and enforce the immigration law? Um, you, have a, you have several different agencies. You have Custom and Border Patrol, ICE, DHS, and USCIS, which is what people think of immigration. So if you're going to be filing an application, you're going to send it to USCIS. If someone's coming in a van for you, it's going to be ICE. <laughs> oh, well, that's uh, easy to understand the, the separation of powers there. <laughs> okay. So we know that you, you explained a little bit how they the, the attorney general was interpreting uh, the law to to mean different things, and uh, these other organizations, federal agencies, enforce uh, the immigration law. Um, what are some of these enforcement priorities? Yeah, that was a really significant change under the Trump administration, where traditionally we had had. Um, and I'm not trying to be political. I I just say it for convenience. You know, that's when it happened. Mm -hmm, right. <laughs> um, there used to be a really um, strict level of priorities that they gave to how your tax dollar was spent. So if they were going to go to a lot of trouble to have the the raids, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen them on TV, but you can just count the dollar signs. I mean, mm -hmm. all the agencies show up, DEA, you know, they all have to have their equipment. So these are very costly procedures, and they would reserve that for someone who had a violent offense. So it, it would happen that people would get deported for a violent offense, you know, after they finish their criminal conviction, after the criminal side is over, if they're an immigrant, then they go fight their case again in immigration court. If they have a certain level of offense, they don't even get a chance to see an immigration judge. They're just automatically deported. Well, if they come back and um, they're tracked and there's a way to go pick them up, those people were top priority. So finding and tracking those people was number one priority. They had actual categories. So anyone with a violent offense um, that had reentered the country, those were um, prioritized. And then under, under Trump, they really did away with all of the priorities. And so you would see people being in deportation proceedings that had lived there 
whole lives here, you know, elderly people, grandmothers with maybe a hot check conviction from 1980. So it was a, a little odd. It created kind of an odd situation there. Um, as far as I'm aware, they are reverting back to the um, placing priority on violent uh, immigrants that have been convicted of a, a violent offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to be just focusing on that. And I don't know yet, it hasn't played out yet, if, um, like, for example, what if there's a traffic stop and it becomes apparent that one person in the car is without documents? It's kind of unclear how they're going to be enforcing that now. Um, But one really good program that um, I'm hoping to see more of is what's called prosecutorial discretion. And that was something that was started under the Obama Obama administration. So when they took that away, it really created um, a situation where judges and law enforcement didn't have any discretion. Mm -hmm. So I think most people expect an immigration system to be kind of fair. They don't expect um, nonviolent people that are going to school, and they really don't expect people like that to be treated the same as someone that has several violent criminal offenses and mm-hmm. yet that was the situation that was cre- created when you don't have any discretion so a return to prosecutorial discretion means that well you don't have to stop mid sentence <laughs> i'm so sorry it means that people that have equities can apply so mm-hmm. it, it's a return to fairness so if you don't have criminal convictions, if you can make the case, look, I'm caring for my, disel- my disabled child, I need to be here, they will hear that now. Okay. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, uh, we will talk to uh, Dr. Uh, Kristen Witte, and we'll also uh, get uh, Juan Molina's perspective. So stay tuned. Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. On 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Apple Podcasts, and TalkLawRadio.com. We're talking with immigration attorney Shannon Salmon Haas, uh, Juan Molina, and uh, hopefully we'll get Dr. Kristen Witte from the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services Organization. Uh, But first, let's talk to David, who is calling in with a question. David, you're live on the air. Oh, well, thanks, uh, Todd. And uh, is it Kristen? Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've been wondering whether or not these uh, kids at the border, it seems kind of unusual that there would be so many kids at once, so I'm just wondering if they're orphans. You know, with COVID, that if uh, the epidemic is so bad in their regions that we're ending up with orphans, and then if they're if they're not allowed into this country, uh, if the sex slave and the 
you know, all of the smugglers who hang out at the border uh, would then be able to prey on them if we didn't uh, do something to encourage them. Thank you for the question. We're going to hang up now, and then we'll let uh, Miss Salmon in. Lots of orphans. Well, I, I guess I shouldn't comment on what's going on, but I, I do have some facts that might be helpful. You know, obviously I'm not there in whatever country they're coming from, so I don't know what is motivating each person particularly. I do know that if you look at the numbers, we've there actually has not been an increase in the number of uh, unaccompanied minors that are presenting themselves at the border. We've always had this issue. There's always been this problem. Um, in the past, we did have some mechanisms in place to um, kind of process people through. A lot of things were dismantled. I think the idea in the past administration was to make things very difficult for people, and that would stop the flow. So we've got some you know, politics and some policy things that are going on behind the scenes that are affecting what you see on the news. A lo- most people that come here, if they're an unaccompanied minor, um, for some reason, I-, I don't know why, but they'll usually have somewhere that's to come and they don't already have an uncle somewhere that's waiting for them mm-hmm. or so they'll usually have a little paper with them you know i've i've, I've seen it myself because I, I go down and volunteer sometimes with with the um immigrant welcome okay. coalition and they'll always have a little it's all torn and tattered and mm-hmm. they've carried it all the way from you know ecuador or wherever they're coming from and or el salvador and they'll take it out and they just need help getting to this person mm-hmm. so um what happened in the past is they would just release unaccompanied minors to their uh relative mm-hmm. and that would take care i think of a lot it might be a good time to talk about something i wanted to talk about which was the settle the flores settlement before the, we get there oh, i want to get a comment from juan molina because he has a, a personal experience about uh crossing the border uh, not as a minor, unaccompanied child, but <laughs> just in uh, everyday experience. So tell us what happened. Yeah, so um, this is coming back to the, um, you know, the policy for interior enforcement priorities. Um, so I, I know a, uh, you know, a person very close to me. Uh, that's why I know the story, basically. They, um, you know, I, I, I was actually crossing the, bo- um, the border with uh, with them and the car, and so um, this person has hadn't committed any you know crimes or hasn't hadn't been convicted, and so you know while crossing the border, uh, they actually give them a um, a random expect- inspection. So he goes into the interrogation room and he sits there for three hours, uh, but no one you know interrogated him, no questions asked. Um, I mean, basically nothing. And so they release him, and um, every time he wanted to cross the border, uh, they wouldn't give him an explanation. They would just, um, you know, put him into an interrogation room and then release him after several hours. Uh, Well, he submitted a letter um, to, you know, see what's going on, and and, uh, he was asked to basically go to Mexico City and find out uh, through the consulate at the um, at Mexico City from the U.S. And they told them after 
several years that he was um, interrogated because he actually had the first name. He had, he had the same first name of someone they were looking for, uh, you know, a convicted felon. And um, so he had to submit, you know, the border easily without any random inspections or anything like that. Um, was this, that? and it's kind of like my question, you probably know this a little bit more than I do, but was this um, something that was enforced more in like a past administration or has is this something very common that you see? Um, what do you think of that? I presume he was crossing with some type of legal permission, like yes. a, a visa. Mm -hmm. In my humble opinion, in my experience, the officials that are on the border, they have a very broad discretion. There's not somebody overseeing them. So unfortunately, there's not a lot that I've ever found that I can do for someone when they have a problem at the border. Oh, okay. it's, a, it's a separate agency. Mm -hmm. um, there's not, you know, they, that person on the ground that's dealing with you, I, I don't know how to say it a different way, but they have discretion. Okay. So they just... But today, it's different than it was 20 years ago, maybe. Very true. Very true. Yes. Um, I mean, tourists would go have lunch across the border and come back and, and not yes, have any very trouble. Yes, very true. Good point. Yes. And I've heard stories of people having their phone seized, and if they have a different political view than you, and they can see on your Facebook post that um, you think differently than them, then they'll do what wow. they can to make your life more difficult. And un unfortunately, they, they have that, that power. If you're here in the United States and you're a green card holder and you and I go together to the immigration office, well, if they treat you poorly, you know, I have somewhere to go to complain mm -hmm. about that. There's an appellate process if they deny your case. But on, on the border, that very entry level, it there's... I don't know how else to say it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you were about to talk about something I forgot. Go ahead. Well, I don't know if it's interesting to your uh, listeners or not, but there, there's several, if they're wanting more information about what's actually happening on the border, the people that have boots on the ground are these organizations. Oh, yeah. You can mention them. Um, and Facebook is a good place to find them. It's um, Team brownsville witness at the border austin border relief volunteers we migrants are still here the matamoros texas refugee action and involvement network and a, a really good one that i really like is project lifeline and so if you want up-to-date information on people that are seeing it with their own eyes and then if you're looking for ways to help, too, you know, they, they have, uh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. These are people that have already been doing it. And then uh, Project Lifeline has a really good infographic about um, kind of how this all started. And so it, it goes way back to the 80s. And there's a very famous law that was created. And I can't uh, say that any administration has ever not been in trouble under this law. You know, so every single administration uh, going back to, well, the 80s has yeah. been sued under this law for not complying. Okay. We have uh, Dr. Kristen Witte 
with uh, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. Uh, You're live on the air. Hello. It's a pleasure to uh, meet all of you uh, vocally, I guess. Yes, thank Um, you for joining us. You're the Director of Outreach. Yes, I am, which is really where faith and the mission of LIRS intersect. Okay. And so you have lots of education. I I read that you have uh, three master's degrees and a doctorate in ministry uh, with an emphasis in pastoral counseling from the Catholic University of America. Uh, That's impressive. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm I, I I find that, unfortunately, uh, the more you learn, the more you want to learn, which has gotten me in a lot of trouble for <laughs> many, many years. So tell us about your organization, uh, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. Sure. Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service is uh, an 80-year-old organization. It was founded after World War II when uh, Lutherans were resettling Lutherans who were fleeing the Nazi regime. After that, uh, the mission expanded, and it became really making sure that out of that core gospel call, that they continued to welcome anyone who needed that kind of Well, thank thank you. Uh, We want you to hang on. If you can stay on the line, we have to take a a one-minute break. We'll come back with uh, Dr. Kristen Witte with Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service, and she's going to talk about what the Bible says about immigration. Stay tuned. to Texas from out of state, your current will, trust, and power of attorney may need to be reviewed and updated. Wills and powers of attorney are state-specific, so it might be a good idea to meet with a Texas attorney. Marquardt Law Firm is the go-to firm in San Antonio for wills, trust, and powers of attorney. They'll develop a strategy to tax-efficiently protect and preserve your assets, reduce family conflict, and maximize government benefits. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. 210-530-4278. Protect what's yours with Marquardt Law Firm. Hello, welcome back. I'm Todd Marquardt with Talk Law Radio, and we're talking about immigration law and the gospel. What does the gospel and the Bible say about immigration? Uh, Dr. Kristen Witte with Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services with us on the line. Absolutely, and and I'm so delighted to be here with you. So uh, tell us, what does the Bible say? Oh, so, so much. Um, when you look at this, the stories within the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures, but then I'm going to focus mostly on what the Gospels really clearly speak of, is you see journey. You see um, the Israelites needing to leave um, because of Pharaoh's persecution. You see people needing to leave, Joseph's brothers needing to leave because of famine. You see all of these stories of people having to migrate, and most of that migration was to fulfill God's call for them. So journeying, being people who are in migration status, is very prevalent within the Scriptures. But to focus real clearly on the Gospels, we have to first say 
that the story of the Gospels, the, the story of Jesus Christ, is really a migration story. Christ migrated in the Incarnation to become flesh, to be human. And then, after, in order to fulfill the salvific crucifixion and resurrection to save us all, Jesus Christ then migrated back to the Father. I, I just think that says to us that this journey that we are on with Christ towards eternal life is really based um, in a concept of migration and movement and change. Um, I think it's really important to focus on Matthew 25. Okay. Matthew, Matthew 25 is, <laughs> I like to call it Jesus' final exam. <laughs> you know, many, many places in Scripture, there are all kinds of questions about, so, Lord, wh- what do we need to do? What do we need to be in order for us to receive that eternal life with you? What does it take? And in Matthew 25, Christ very clearly says what it takes in order to be a disciple, but in order to receive eternal life, what the final exam is. And Matthew, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Later on in that exact same chapter, it says, truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Who are the most vulnerable in our society right now? Well, we have children and pregnant mothers who are trying to escape gang violence and human trafficking south of the border. We have the Chin community, which are um, often referred to as Burmese, but the Chin community who are being persecuted openly persecuted for their Christian beliefs. We have so many who are seeking to escape the fear and the persecution, to come to a place of hope and joy. And so, so much of what we are doing is trying to live that Matthew 25, 35, and 40 that I just read to you, that beautiful, I have my Bible all open in front of me, that beautiful understanding that the golden rule never stops. There is no border to the golden rule. We are as connected in solidarity with the people who are experiencing persecution as Christians in um, Asia as we are to a pregnant woman who is trying to escape her abusive husband in the Central Triangle. And all of those stories, all of those people have intrinsic human dignity, that they are a gift from God, and that they, every human being, is, no human being is a mistake, and every human being was created by God for some purpose. And, and lifting up that dignity is really, you know, the basic fundamental understanding when you, when you read Luke 10 and 27, and you say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, but love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. Will you uh, tell us how LIRS helps? Absolutely. I'd love to. I I see us as very much the Good Samaritan. 
we uh, we see that people are in need, um, and in two different areas specifically. One is refugee resettlement, and the other one is unaccompanied minors and children. LIRS is one of the two agencies in the United States that was invited to do family reunification by the federal government, uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and LIRS. When children were separated from their families, these two organizations are so trusted by the government, these two faith organizations, that they were invited to come and help figure out how to reunify those children with their families. Um, we do those two things, refugee resettlement and working with unaccompanied minors, and have been doing it really for the entire course of our mission. Um, we don't go off our horse, back to the Good Samaritan analogy, walk across the street and say, so where are your papers and why were you on the road and what's, you know, the limitations to why you, you know, didn't you know this road was dangerous? Instead, we take care of the person regardless of whether they are Christian or non-Christian, we take care of the human being because we are Christian, because we believe that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, so therefore we love our neighbor. Um, and then we provide for them until they, um, we call it the long welcome. It's not a the 60-day welcome to the United States person who was formerly persecuted for being a Christian, and we're only going to take care of you for 60 days. You won't know the language. You won't have a job, and we're going to walk away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we stick around for the long haul, and we connect people of faith and people who actually aren't faith-based to the service and the volunteer opportunities and teaching English as a second language and being able to drive people to medical appointments and helping uh, children and mothers. We make sure um, that that people are able to help that are that feel called to this ministry and what's going on right now or or more more recently um, that you're really focused on i'm glad you asked that um right now there is a real situation on the southern border the the southern border um for quite some time um, had been sadly uh, thousands of kids, children under 18, unaccompanied migrant children, are arriving at the southern border seeking protection from violence and extreme poverty that have ravished Central America. Um, what we're doing is we are urgently working with the network of community groups and volunteers and service providers to address the critical needs of these children and to work to reunite them with a family member. You know, people really want to do something to help, but so often because of the sensitive nature of children who have often experienced trauma, we have to be incredibly protective, incredibly careful, so that these kids don't get trafficked, so that they're monitored, so that ideally, in the temporary short term, they would go into a foster family that could tuck them in at night and could read them a story in their language and could give them a hug and say, it's okay, we'll get you to your family. So right now we're doing a lot of foster family recruitment to um, temporary foster recruitment in order to help with these thousands of unaccompanied migrant children. And we're also figuring out what we can do as a a faith-based community um, 
to really uh, create a network that can support some of these uh, kids and can also start to um, support some of our partners on the ground who will be providing these kids with emergency uh, laptops or, you know, often kids don't even have the proper clothing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had a situation where I heard of a refugee child who arrived in Chicago in the middle of winter in shorts, a T-shirt, and a pair of flip-flops. Wow. And, and LIRS and the, and the Lutheran community, and more importantly, the entire particularly Christian faith community, came forward and made sure that child had a winter coat <laughs> mm-hmm. and a hat and a pair of mittens and a pair of snow pants and made sure that that child would be safe and cared for until they could be reunified. So it's really, it's the work, I, I believe it's the work of the gospel. It's the work of serving those most vulnerable and making sure that they have long-term what they need in order to then thrive. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have to wrap up our, our program's ending soon. But again, thank you for joining us, and we'll uh, hopefully talk to you again sometime soon. It's been an absolute delight, and call on me anytime. I will. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so uh, I ran across some interesting statistics about migration and immigration Um, in San Antonio, where we are. uh, They say that 30% of San Antonio's business owners are immigrants, even though they only make up 13.5% of the city's population. So that was interesting to me. Uh, San Antonio is home to many immigrants, and so I I wanted people to know that uh, there's you must know one thing if your spouse is here legally but is not yet a citizen uh, for estate planning purposes. A married couple consisting of two U.S. citizens can avoid the federal estate tax when the first spouse dies and leaves everything to his or her spouse because of the automatic, unlimited marital deduction. This strategy is not available when the surviving spouse is not a citizen. There is no automatic unlimited marital deduction from estate taxes if a United States citizen spouse dies and leaves an inheritance for a spouse that is not a citizen, sometimes referred to as a non-citizen spouse or a foreign spouse. But good news. Estate planning attorneys can help you establish a special kind of trust to help get a marital deduction from estate taxes in this very situation. A spouse can pull income out of that trust free of income tax. Now, the downside is you can't get principal distributions unless you can prove there's a hardship. So income is tax-free if you are able to get principal that's taxed at the marginal estate tax rate. So if you want your non-citizen spouse to receive tax-free income after your death, call an estate planning attorney. So that's it for us. Thank you, Shannon, for joining us. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Juan. Thank you for having me. You have a great perspective. And we'll see you next time on Talk Law Radio.